All right, so we're in week two of this Love Strong series, and as you cannot read from your seat, in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth says, the weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And this is not one of those macho, I could beat you with one hand tied behind my back. If I was feeling under the weather, I was still stronger than you at your best day. That's not what we're talking about. This is the modus operandi of God, uh, that God chooses the humble path. And that is so counterintuitive and countercultural that we really can't believe it. But that's what was evidenced in Jesus' life, and that's what was evidenced in the prophet's life uh, before him. Uh, it's what was evidenced in Paul's life and all the apostles, uh, that the way to grow, the way to transform is in laying ourselves down, not in trying to beat the other up. So we're going to take a look at some scriptures that lots of churches around the world are looking at today. And sort of the idea I'm getting at here is to choose wisely and to choose humbly. So we start off uh, with Psalm 119, uh, which is the longest psalm uh, in the Bible. And starts off with this. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only on his paths. This implies there's choice. It's not obvious that we're going to choose the best route. And in my vernacular, I'm thinking that the way of God, which is uh, generally, we can see that in the person of Jesus, is good. Uh, it blesses everybody. It's good for individuals. It's good for community. It's good for the planet. It's about shalom, this deeper, deep peace, integration, harmony, maturity, all that. And apparently there are other ways that are not oriented that way. Uh, that seem to be oriented toward things other than that. Selfishness, greed, um, closing in to the detriment of others. So be, keep thinking about that. What do you see here? Is this a goblet? Or are these two faces? How many of you immediately saw a goblet? How many of you immediately saw two faces? There are different ways to see things. Uh, toward the end of his life and right before uh, the people of Israel were going to march into the promised land that they'd been marching toward for 40 years, uh, Moses gives his swan song speech. And this is at the tail end of it. You've seen the movie, right? Uh, so this is toward the end. And Moses says, today I have given you the choice. And he has this long sermon right before this. Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firmly to Him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land of the Lord swore, the, that the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is a way that leads to that dream life. And Moses, is, before this, gives lots of examples on what that looks like. But in general, the way of God leads to the best of our hopes for life. What do you see here? How many of you see an old woman? How many of you see a young woman looking away? How many of you saw both of those? Because you've seen this a lot of times. <laughs> My point with this image, you ever see it? Everybody need help seeing it? 
Well, ask somebody else to see it. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. So um, if you're seeing an older woman and you can't see the younger woman, the nose of the older woman that's sort of looking toward us a little bit, the nose is actually the jawline of the younger woman looking away. Uh, and if you're looking at the younger woman, then look at her jawline, and that becomes the nose of the older woman. And then, uh, well, anyway, hopefully you can see it a little bit now. Are you starting to see it? There are different ways of looking at things, and we immediately see one way, and we may not see the other way. Jesus had things to say about choices that we would make. This one's a little more subtle. He says, you have heard, this is part of a, what I call Jesus' stump speech, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or the Sermon on the Plain, depending on which gospel you're reading. And the reason I call it his stump speech is I don't think this was a one-and-done thing where he said it one time, and that was it, as, as is depicted in the Gospels. I think the reason why this speech was so well-known and remembered so clearly is because I think he did it a thousand times. I think everywhere he went, this was his thing. People gathered around to hear his wisdom that was different. They were hearing a different, fresh voice and so about halfway through or so, uh, he's talking, knowing that there are other religious leaders in the audience uh, who've had a constricting sort of view on religion and faith. And he says, you've heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, meaning, he's got a different idea on that, but I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, <clears throat> you are in danger of the fires of hell. <clears throat> now, I put in here in parenthesis that hell, <clears throat> uh, nearly every time, not every time, uh, there's one other uh, time that's a little bit different, uh, but all the times that Jesus talks, all but one of the times that Jesus talks about that word hell or a reference to that uh, is Gehenna, <clears throat> Greek word Gehenna, and in Hebrew it's Ben-Hinnom. And this refers to, uh, not necessarily in Jesus' time, but the cultural memory would have been there, that this was a literal valley outside uh, the city of Jerusalem uh, where uh, trash was burnt. It was an unholy place. It was made an unholy place because uh, some sacrifices were made there that were horrible and they were abusive to people. And so the way they made sure that nothing holy would ever happen there again is they, they burned the very people who were, it's gross, but they burned the very people there who were guilty of those things in that spot. And that valley became, Ben-Hinnom, became the trash dump for a long period of time. So culturally, people would know that when Jesus said what we are calling hell, he's just simply saying this is the place where we burn trash. So what Jesus is saying here is, and he says it multiple times in this stump speech, he uses that word hell. Uh, if your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off, lest your whole body be thrown into hell. If your eye is causing you to sin, Pluck it out, lest your whole body be thrown into hell. What he's saying is, don't throw your life away. And what we're seeing here is, he's saying, you think it's just about killing somebody. No, our attitude is part of the problem. And if you think you're innocent just because you haven't actually done a physical act of harm to somebody, you're really missing the whole point. The whole point is, are you walking in the way of the Spirit of God, which is the way of love and respect? Don't throw your life away on your bad attitudes or your limited perspective. Jesus is giving us a choice. And believe it or not, uh, for those in the audience, like you and I probably right now, we struggle with this. We recognize that we have a way of being in the world, and Jesus is suggesting that perhaps we haven't always chosen the best way. And that 
startles us a little bit. Our hubris, our ego, our pride rises up. Don't you tell me what to do, kind of a thing. And yet, if we give way to humility and just listen to what Jesus is saying, we find out, we really all find out that we all have room to grow. Because we don't always get it right. And it's not about God judging us or whipping us into shape. It's about, are we becoming more mature in the loving ways of God? What do you see here? How many of you see a duck? How many of you see a rabbit? <laughs> Depending on your perspective, you immediately are going to see it one way or another. See Lauren Haas for a fun cartoon on this one <laughs> at a later date. <laughs> the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church talks about choices that had been made and his frustration over that. And he says, but for right now, friends, I'm completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well then, I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way? What Paul is saying here, clearly, is that they are immature babies who need to grow up. Short and simple. What is he saying? He's saying you've, you've, you're making choices. There are choices that you're making, and probably your hubris, your pride, your, uh, your certainty of this is the way is keeping you from hearing a broader, deeper, more beautiful way that's actually going to transform you and the whole world. Can you have ears to hear? That was a common phrase of Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Suggesting that we have some control over our capacity for hearing and seeing. That it may have something to do with our ego, with our pride, with our certainty. And he's saying, try as hard as you can to soften that. Because you don't want to miss the greater thing that is being spoken. Hubris and humility. Which way do we follow? One last thing. How many of you see a blue and black striped dress? How many of you see a gold and white striped dress? Well, isn't that confusing? I showed this a few years ago as part of a teaching to help people recognize that we literally see things very differently. I had a guy totally wigging out in one of our services because he could not believe that anybody in the room was seeing a gold and white striped dress. And you can Google this on your own and find out why this is. It has to do with our receptors and how light comes into our eyes and different people recognize it one way. You can't see this, all right? If you're seeing blue and black, there's no way you can sit here and concentrate hard enough <laughs> uh, to see it any other way. It's just you can't help it. And some of you are shaking your head in disbelief, and that's fine. Uh, you can go Google this uh, later on. Well, how we see things is part of our decision about hubris and humility, and I want to talk about that today. Uh, sometimes in life, uh, we have these moments, often they're catastrophic moments, that like immediately, no matter how divided people are, how divided countries are, even globally, one country against another, there are sometimes certain events that just level us all. And they, they take us down, they humble us. Uh, for the United States, we didn't really give too much of a rip about the almost world war that was happening until 
Pearl Harbor. Once we saw that kind of devastation, our hearts were broken, and all of a sudden we cared about getting involved. Uh, when JFK was assassinated, uh, the world looked around, and we as a country uh, got over our partisanship, and we mourned together uh, that our president was killed. When Martin Luther King uh, was gunned down, and on April 4 in Memphis, uh, there was a collective gasp, and we forgot for a moment, for a second, about that which divided us. I bet you can remember other times as well. I remember when the Space Shuttle Challenger uh, blew up. I remember uh, where I was. I remember being in high school uh, when that happened. And there was just a collective silence everywhere, and everybody was a little nicer to each other for a while. And of course, we remember 9-11, where immediately uh, the prevailing uh, sentiment wasn't immediate anger and wrath toward whoever did this to us. That came later. The first thing that happened was, uh, for the most part, except for those who were responsible for it, um, a lot of the people in the world felt horrible and were sending condolences to the United States for such a clear act of terror. Anytime we get a crisis here in Napa Valley, a natural uh, of kind of disaster, if it was the earthquake back in 2014 or the fires of 2015, 17, and 20, <laughs> uh, and we, of course, are at the epicenter of all that as a Napa County's uh, first shelter to open, uh, we get massive outpouring of support from all over the nation and even other parts of the world to support what we're trying uh, to do here. Now, today, I can't, because we've been through an earthquake nowhere near as significant as the one in Turkey and Syria. I can, I, can you get your brain around nearly 400,000 people that are homeless and what it, tw over 24,000 uh, so far have died? I can't get my brain around that. What else can we do but allow our hearts to break and hope to help? By the way, the, hope, the help that we offer is through our partner churches over in that part of the world. So it's not money that is going to be wasted away by whatever government officials that probably should have been doing things differently all along and now they're in a tight spot. This goes directly to the people that are our brothers and sisters in the faith that are there like we would be if it happened in our backyard. So you can trust it is what I'm saying. All this has to do with recognizing that we can have great hubris, we can have great ego, we can have great pride about and great certainty about the way that things are, but then something will happen and break in and, and rattle us to the point where all that shifts away for a second, and what are we left with? We're left with eyes that are soft toward each other, eyes of love and caring toward each other, even, even people that once were enemies, now we actually care about them and can receive care from them. Something changes, but unfortunately in terms of natural disasters or whatever, it doesn't last very long. It takes time. It takes practice to cultivate how we see the world. And as we think about Black History Month and all that, I want to tell a little bit of my own story uh, to help you understand it. I've shared some of it before, and I just want to unpack some of it with you now. Part of what I'm thinking is, uh, and this actually uh, is from a resource in the book that, that uh, Stephen's going to be taking us through in a couple of months. Um, we all see through lenses, glasses, and whether or not you know that you're wearing them, 
um, is another story. By the way, has anybody done this? I've done this. Where you're walking around your house looking for your sunglasses, and you're w looking and looking and looking, and finally somebody says, uh, Pete, you're wearing them. Yeah, <laughs> right? Well, guess what? You don't have to look for your lenses. You don't have to look to pick them up because they're already on you all the time. You are already seeing through lenses that you did not choose for the most part. And they're affected by all kinds of things. Your citizenship, your religion, your class, your sexuality, your race, your age, your gender and ability. All of these things affect how you see the world out here and how you interpret the world coming in. Every one of us. Right now, the challenge is for us to even admit that that's true. Can we get over our hubris enough, our ego enough to say, nope, I have it all figured out. I see things absolutely clearly. The way I see it is exactly how the world really is. <laughs> Can we just admit together that we're all idiots to that degree, right? None of us are that brilliant. None of us have that kind of capacity. It's not possible. Every one of us has lenses. Can we foster the humility? Like, like the psalmist is encouraging, like Moses is encouraging, like Jesus is encouraging, like the Apostle Paul is encouraging to be humble enough to admit that we don't always see things clearly. I love the spaciousness meditation because it just reminds us that we can't see everything and how freeing it can be if we're humble enough to allow our ourselves into a space where we can even look at our own shortcomings, our own ways that have not been correct, see, correct ways of seeing, the ways that our lenses have caused us and others harm. Isn't it wonderful that if, if we can step back from that and just admit, yeah, that's there. That's been with me. Don't you see, when we take ourselves into that space, it's one step toward greater freedom from those things so that we can see more broadly and clearly. Uh, this is something you can't see at all, but this is just different ways. <laughs> uh, from the inner circle to the outer circle, ways that we are affected, and all sorts of factors come in here. My, my point with this graphic that just has so much information on there is just, I meant to hand this out to you, and I, I failed on that today. Um, but my point with this is, just to help you know, there are so many factors that craft our lenses to see the world in a particular way. So um, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri at St. Luke's Hospital on June 18, 19 something, and, um, <laughs> uh, and was raised the first eight years of my life in suburban uh, Kansas City. Now Kansas City um, is, part of it's in Missouri, part of it's in uh, Kansas, KCK, uh, uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Um, now anyway is a little bit rougher area and where I was growing up was Overland Park uh, in its earlier stages which is now this sprawling massive uh, community in Johnson County one of the wealthier counties in the nation and uh, a lot of positive things going on there but what I want you to know about is my exposure to people of color uh, was extremely limited in Overland Park um, really my experience, my first eight years of life, um, we had a Filipino family living down the street, and their son was my brother's best friend. And so we goofed around a lot uh, with that family and those, those guys. And so I was comfortable 
Um, even though I knew that they ate different foods than us and they looked different than us, they were just our friends uh, down the block. And we shot rockets off together and did go-karts together. And my brother and uh, his buddy Billy, they worked on cars together. Uh, in Ottawa, Kansas, later, we took, uh, we took his uh, Chevy SS uh, about 120 miles an hour down a hill and uh, <laughs> as four kids who should not have been going that fast in that jalopy. But we did it and, uh, and we survived. So I have that kind of, that kind of lens. Uh, but my experience with African Americans in particular was very, very limited. And my parents taught us, my dad was a pastor, and they taught us to be kind uh, to everybody. That was, that was the ruling law of our household. We're nice to everybody. But my only exposure to uh, black neighbors uh, was largely what I saw on TV uh, or uh, the Kansas City Royals, famous Amos Otis, you know, their slugger. I uh, loved him. Willie Wilson could steal bases like anybody. So I had this contrast of stars that I like to watch play baseball and other sports, but, but then a lot of the news coming out of KCK um, was violence and crime. And most of the time, uh, the people who were featured in the pictures on, on the TV um, were African Americans. And we never talked about it as a family. It was just kind of left there. Like, well, this happened there. And, you know, when I'm a little kid, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm kind of putting words in my mouth and ideas in my head that I don't think I could articulate at eight years old or even a little bit after that. But looking back now, uh, I, can, I can appreciate um, what was probably happening in me. And probably in my head, uh, I'm thinking that African Americans are really foreign to me. Um, they're an unknown, because I didn't know any yet. Uh, and my impression was what I was seeing on TV, uh, that some were these great athletes or artists in other ways. But then it seemed like entire communities were really struggling, and I couldn't figure out what the deal was. Well, my dad uh, took, a, um, took a new role. He left as pastor of the church we were in and became uh, president of a university in Ottawa, Kansas, just south of Kansas City. And we were there for about five years, and um, that was a real eye-opener in some ways. Uh, one, when I went to school, I had a friend named Frank who was black, and he and I got along great, uh, played football together, we were classmates, uh, we were in the same fake gang together <laughs> for a while, <laughs> did absolutely nothing, but we felt like a gang. So, so that was empowering in some way. Anyway, I got to know Frank, and we were friends, and um, I was the ball boy for the university uh, football team, because I was a president's kid, and I got to get away with stuff. And uh, so I got to know these massive guys, you know, from all over the country, and probably half the team was black, I'm guessing, and, and it was cool, you know, the, so they became less foreign to me, they became real people, and I remember there was this one time, uh, this was during basketball season, and uh, for the university, and uh, there was kind of a bully kid uh, that was uh, coming around and wanted to start something with me, I don't know why, uh, I'm such a nice guy, why would anybody want to start anything with me? And anyway, it was clear that uh, this kid was, was threatening me, you know, kind of in front of uh, um, the basketball arena. And one of the football players, who happened to be black and happened to be massive, he was a lineman, I think, he stepped in 
And he protected me because he knew who I was. And so my experience started to reshape based on my relationship uh, with people of color that I hadn't had before. But after five years, we moved up to Michigan, um, and uh, we were back into a, you know, a fairly wealthy suburb, uh, which was uh, mostly white, uh, white and Asian for the most part, and um, didn't have much exposure, that, again, except for what I saw on the news headlines and so forth. Uh, of African Americans. Um, I've told the story before. We had uh, one friend of mine, Sammy, who was a classmate of mine. Um, this was, I was in high school when uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller album uh, hit and ruled everything. And uh, people recognized a really cool way to dance with Michael Jackson. And Sammy was a dead ringer for Michael Jackson. He had the look down, he was about the same size. He had the moves. Uh, so that kind of made him socially acceptable in a, in, a, in a school that the culture of which really, really didn't reflect uh, part of his background. Uh, we had more black families move in uh, to the area and into the school eventually, and you could feel the tension in the air. Um, some of the black students, uh, who were my friends, um, one in particular, she was in uh, my psychology classes and in choir and stuff. Um, if, this is kind of how it went. If, if, if they were able to adjust and enter into uh, the dominant culture of my school, which was largely informed by a lens of being Caucasian or Northern European, um, it's kind of blended right in. But if they brought a different culture into the into the mix, there was immediate tension, and it was palpable. Really odd. I went back to Ottawa University for my bachelor's degree, where I earned my uh, bachelor's in psychology. And uh, there, um, my experience and understanding uh, changed some more. Uh, one of my good friends was Clarence Adolphus Lacey, who now is a fellow American Baptist, or probably duly aligned pastor, out in Brooklyn, New York. And he and I were were pals. Uh, we would uh, we were buddies. We were roommates. Uh, anytime the choir uh, went around, he and I were rooming together. And I experienced some things through his eyes that I I couldn't believe. Uh, when we would go into small towns in Iowa and play for whatever First Baptist Church wherever in Iowa, and we'd stay in members' homes, and uh, I I I will not uh, ever be able to forget uh, the look on some of the families' faces when when their guests for the night uh, were brought to them and they weren't quite sure what to do with it. And it was clear that this may have been one of their first times where they ever had a face-to-face -face encounter with a real black American. It was hard stuff. My uh, group project that we had to do uh, my senior year of college, um, we chose a topic. The idea was you work collectively with a group of people and you tackle a significant social issue and research the heck out of it and collectively write a paper and try to help understanding and all that. It was a good, it was a good exercise. And the one that we uh, dealt with, this is back in, so we're up to about 1992 now. And we were dealing with the education system. And what we recognized, and this was in the headlines, it's, it's still in the headlines. California kind of did a reversal on this very thing. 
is there was a policy among universities across the nation uh, where they would uh, use a different measure for different students as they would come in. Long story short, uh, there were, and this is why it became very controversial, there would be uh, white students uh, that performed really well on the ACT and or the SAT, but they would get passed over in favor of people of color, especially black Americans, who performed less favorably in the ACT or the SAT. And our initial discussion around the table was, well, that's not fair. How can that be fair? And so clearly, there was, there was some stuff uh, to work with here. And as we uh, dug into this and understood what the research was, uh, my eyes were opened in a different way. I don't think about this a lot. Um, you know, there are some, I'm going to make some really big generalizations, so give me an umbrella of grace here. Uh, but in general, um, white culture, which has been the dominant culture in the United States, uh, and the prevailing uh, power culture in the United States is different in many ways than other cultures that exist in the United States. Uh, so there is a, you can't really broad stroke this so much as to say an Asian culture, even though we kind of do, uh, because that's a whole lot of different countries that, that make that up. So there are distinctives maybe to that. And, and while we can say there is black culture in the United States, uh, we got to be careful with that because not everybody is from the same part of the United States, same experience. But will you grant me that there are at least two different kinds of very general cultural ways of being in the United States? And we can, we can see that. So, and I saw that in my high school very, very clearly. Well, what we learned in the, in the research was that um, the way that language, uh, uh, the way uh, communication happens, intonation, uh, communication, pronunciation, all sorts of things, were different in general in the black community than they were in the white community. And so what was recognized was is because the ACT and the SAT were written by people who were very comfortable, of course, in the dominant culture, which is the white culture, to think like a white person, to speak like the white person, to read and write like the white person, people who were not familiar with that culture very well did not do so well on the tests. It kind of makes sense. So I earned my doctorate in, in 2006. I was thinking about this recently. If I went to a foreign country and started to learn, say I went to uh, Mexico, went down to Deborah's house, and I'm trying to immerse myself uh, in the language there and do better, better. Let's say that I started to study then. Uh, it started with, with high school. How well would I have done in high school as not knowing the language or the culture very well? How well would I do in college? How well would I do get earning my master's? How well would I do earning my doctorate? I would do not nearly as well as I did. Does that make total sense? And so that's why uh, this started to come in and help understand, okay, if we're really going to be a place, a, a nation of equal opportunity, then we have to factor these things into the equation. Otherwise, uh, the literal system is designed against an entire people group uh, in our country. 
Some of this reality was borne out yesterday in one of the speeches from the president of Napa Valley Community College where he talked about the representation of black Americans in college both on the university, like the Cal University level or the state system, and also in uh, the community college system is way behind that in terms of uh, numbers of people per population in general. And so we know we have issues here. Now, as I continued to grow and learn and go on from college, went to Northern Seminary outside of Chicago where it was an incredibly robust, uh, diverse uh, population and it was just learning curve like crazy uh, to understand and appreciate new friendships, uh, new ways of thinking, new perspectives on theology that I never could have imagined before, uh, new understanding of, of what the talk was, and as I grew in all this stuff, and I still have so much further to go, uh, even up until a few years ago, when I grew up, and maybe you're like this too, everybody knew that slavery happened. Everybody knew that slavery ended. Everybody knew that segregation happened. Uh, everybody knew there was a civil rights movement. Uh, and, and that's kind of it. I didn't really know uh, why uh, it, there was such a problem after the Civil War. I didn't know that Reconstruction was enforced and then because of political decisions the heat was taken off and the Reconstruction in the South kind of went away and became Jim Crow laws which in some ways were worse on black Americans in some cases than slavery was itself. There was a, an inequality there. I didn't know that the reasons why uh, that black Americans didn't do as well academically were because of decisions that were made 120 years ago and how funding would happen for the local schools. I didn't know that there were people at that time uh, that, that knew ways to think about how we can guarantee uh, that people are staying in their zone in their lane. I didn't realize the impact of how the zip code around the school and the neighborhoods around the school are the ones that that determine how much money those schools get. So the poorer the the neighborhood, the poorer the schools and the less of the education. It started to make a lot more sense to me why my parents were really uh, specific in the suburbs that they chose to live in around Lansing, Michigan, and why we chose Okemos over all of the options. Because they wanted the best education for me, and they knew the way to guarantee that was to move into a community of wealth. So I didn't, I didn't realize what that would do long term, and none of us were born, I don't think, uh, when those decisions were made, but they're still, they're still at work. I didn't understand how the middle class came to be after World War II. I didn't, I didn't know that the GI Bill made such an impact on that. That coming home from war, um, there was this wonderful opportunity uh, afforded by the government uh, that military men could get their college education for free and had access to loans that never before were even heard of. And the idea was is that we wanted the nation to grow and prosper, and it did. Suburbs became a thing <laughs> in the wake of World War II. Uh, that was the time, by the way, if you were a pastor, that was the time to be a pastor. 
Because literally, United Methodists, American Baptists, and other denominations, if they, saw a if they saw a development was going up, they would build the church before the houses, knowing that as soon as the houses were built, they'd have a full church. And that's really how it was. <laughs> what I didn't know is that the GI Bill, while technically was for all GIs coming back from World War II, it really didn't work out that way in practice. I didn't realize that black Americans coming back from serving in the same war, putting their lives on the line like everybody else, came back and the homes that they were allowed to buy were only in very restricted areas, impoverished areas, black areas. So that meant uh, that while they might be able to get a home, and even then that was a big if because it was still hard to get lenders to say okay to a home in a, a very impoverished area. Uh, who they would often get ripped off with extra fees that would make buying a home almost pointless. There are still people today that are stuck in terrible loans and fees back from the World War II era. It's crazy. And then the colleges, uh, they were welcome to go to college. But what if only one or two will accept black students? And so I'm thinking about my life, and I'm thinking that my grandparents on both sides were immigrants, both from the same region, uh, kind of were Dutchish, uh, sort of. And I'm thinking about them coming over to the country just wanting to have a fresh start and wanting to do the best they could because they saw a future here in America that had greater hope than where they were. And both sides came and they made it happen in the Midwest and, and were afforded a lot of things because I look like me. And it's hard to imagine uh, that people who, just based on their ethnicity, didn't experience the same luxuries. And of course, these things develop over time. All I'm saying to you is that uh, there was so much that I did not know. I didn't know how the same would work with crime and uh, the politicization of fear and, and how that was generally related to race in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. It's like I was beginning to see my own lenses. And the more I learned and the more I understood, well, it just made me a little embarrassed. I've talked about this stuff before, so I'm, and yet, <laughs> it's still awkward. It's not becoming to talk about our own journey. It's not becoming to say that I didn't have a clue. And it's embarrassing to say that I didn't care for a long time. But like a lot of folks that look like me, we didn't care because we didn't know to care. And part of the part about caring is that to really look like and to really look at it means that we got to own it at least for ourselves and that's really really hard to do hubris can't stand long can't stand long when confronted with information and relationships so a decision has to be made at some point which way do we go? Hubris or humility? Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. What do we see in Jesus? 
a guy who he himself got schooled because of his prejudice. His eyes needed to be corrected in a story. And they were. And he became different because of it. This is the story of all the disciples having to get rid of whatever lenses they'd borrowed for a new thing. We had a friend who had a birthday uh, recently, and I found this card. And as no reflection on the person, I just thought it was a really funny card. And uh, so it has this hot dog standing on top of a mountain, and it says some birthday wisdom. A bratwurst is just a hot dog who understands how special he is. <laughs> How many of you have been to a Giants game? This is my favorite thing to get at a Giants game. The Sheboygan Bratwurst with all the fixings. Come on. That's, that's heaven right there. So I think it's a very good thing uh, for us to recognize that we're, we're bratwurst in a world of hot dogs. I think the problem is, is that some of us have celebrated our bratwurstiness not realizing that still at the end of the day we're a bunch of hot dogs. <laughs> and we haven't appreciated the different varieties that we have in our world and, and in people and recognize their uniqueness, their specialness to say, well, there's a hot link right over there. That's a spicy one. <laughs> there's a chicken and apple right over there. There's a garlic and onion right over there. All these different varieties, as many as we can possibly imagine. But can we just admit that we're all a bunch of sausages? <laughs> can we all admit at the end of the day we're all a bunch of hot dogs? We're all, <laughs> we really are. If we really want to boil it down, we're all processed meat one way or the other. Every last one of us. And perhaps when we get to that level of understanding, we're just processed meat. Get over ourselves. <laughs> we don't know everything. We don't see everything crystal clear. Maybe then the hubris will, will go away and we'll just be recognizing, oh, we should just really be looking at each other and really respecting each other and, and valuing each other and wondering how can we make sure that every hot dog has its fair chance at the Giants game, right? That's, that's kind of where we're headed. How does that work? Well, there's a final passage. This is not in most of our Bibles. Uh, this is Jewish wisdom literature. Uh, showed up a uh, hundred-ish years, a little more than that, uh, before Jesus was born. Um, the wisdom writer Sirach. Now some of you, uh, how many of you like Sriracha? Alright, so you look at this Sriracha and you might be thinking, could it be that the ancient recipe of Sriracha is embedded in this ancient Jewish literature? No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> they may sound a little like, but they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But this is pretty wise stuff. So this is what uh, this ancient wisdom teacher has to say. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. And to act faithfully is a matter of your choice. He has placed before you fire and water. Stretch out your hand for whichever you choose. Before each person are life and death. And whichever one chooses will be given. For great is the wisdom of the Lord. He is mighty in power and sees everything. His eyes are on those who fear him, or revere him is a better translation, and he knows every human action. I love this last part. He has not commanded anyone to be ungodly, and he has not given anyone permission to sin. Meaning, those are our choices probably based in our hubris when we really needed humility. Love strong. Love strong is the way 
of humility. It is the way that unites us together. It is the way that helps us see each other as equals. It is the way that allows the very Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God is also in that humble servant capacity, allows unity to happen, allows a oneness to happen, allows growth to happen, allows bonds to be made. And do you see how countercultural and counterintuitive this is? In a world that loves its tough-talking politicians on either side of the aisle, we need more humility and less hubris. We need to love each other. And this is the way of God. So in a moment, uh, we'll pray this adaptation of the Lord's Prayer together. But before we do, can we just be still for a moment? And I invite you to close your eyes uh, with me. And God, I'm trusting that your spirit uh, is fully at work in this space. Has been whether or not we have had the capacity to know it or not. God, you are that intangible other. You are our ground of being. You are sometimes depicted as some king on a throne, but you're so much more than that, expansive than that. You are involved in everything. Even if we can't see it sometimes with our own eyes, you are here and there and everywhere. And you are known by love. And your spirit calls us, woos us toward love. And I believe that in this space today, that you have been at work to move us and call us toward humility. To let down our hubris, which does not allow us to speak vulnerably. Does not allow us to see ourselves clearly or, or to own our complicity in the problems of our day. You invite us to trust the spaciousness of love. A spaciousness that allows us to be humble, to recognize what we don't know, to lay down our lenses, to become more whole. I trust, God, that you are at work here today. In congregation, I'm wondering if you've had ears to hear. And what you may be sensing from God today, it may not necessarily have anything to do with whatever came out of my mouth or any other part of the service. Or maybe it did. How do you sense today that God is nudging you? What is stirring in you? Will you help us wonder why there might be a certain thing stirring in us, a certain question or word or phrase? Why is that thing important for us to recognize today? Spirit of God, spirit of love, spirit of reconciliation, redemption, Renewal, resurrection. God, can you help us know what you might be inviting us to do in response to your working with us today?
What do you want us to do in response? God, we are so grateful for who you have created us as a congregation, who you continue to create us into as a congregation. We're so grateful for yesterday and what was celebrated here, a history that is largely unknown and unwritten, which is why we need a month just to remind us that there's a history to know and to celebrate and to own. It's U.S. history. It's our history. I'm grateful for that. But God, we want to be as uncomfortable as it is. We want to be a church that seeks discomfort because discomfort leads to growth and maturation. And we want to continually be a church that is, that is malleable by your spirit to become whoever you need us to be in this community and in this world. So God, we invite you to continue to woo us and to mold us to hold a mirror to our face so that we might see the lenses we're wearing and the hubris we're walking around with and instead bow down in humility and want to know more. To that end, God, we pray this adaption, adaptation of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. So if you'd read this out loud with me, if you're willing. Our loving, supporting, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, Thy divine commonwealth come. Thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. Let it be so. Thanks for coming today, guys. Go Chiefs, and we will see you next week. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.